is so good and what a great morning it has already been to sing and to celebrate and to rejoice in what Christ has done in us and for us and to rejoice in the baptism of, of, of our brother Aaron and we just praise God for all that he has done, what he is doing and what he will do. This morning, if you have a Bible with you, please open to the Old Testament to the minor prophet Nahum. Nahum chapter 1. Now I realize opening to Nahum is easier said than done. Uh, the minor prophets right before the New Testament, right before the book of Matthew, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, and then we come to the book of Nahum. Now as you turn there, I just I want to remind you big picture of where we have been thus far in our study of the character and nature of God. Over the past several months in this series, which we've been calling The Great I Am, we have been examining and looking at those attributes, those characteristics of God that are essential to His being, that help us understand who God is in, in His glory. On the screens, you can see kind of a list of the attributes that we have covered thus far. We've seen that God is self-existent. He is eternal. He is infinite and self-sufficient. He is holy and transcendent. We've seen that He is triune, existing as Father, Son, and Spirit. He is the great omnis. He's omniscient. He knows all things. He is omnipresent. He is present everywhere. He is omnipotent, possessing all power. He is sovereign, wise, and truthful. He is good and faithful. He is merciful and gracious. He is love and He is jealous. And He is perfect righteousness and He is justice. This is our God. He is glorious. He is transcendent. It is so important that we know Him and that we embrace Him for who He has revealed Himself to be. And now this morning, we come to two more attributes of God. Two attributes that can tend to make us, if we're being honest... Rather uncomfortable. We come to two truths about God that many people would rather avoid, they would rather dismiss, they would like to pretend they do not exist. These are two truths of God that we sometimes are even maybe a little embarrassed to talk about because we think that somehow they are beneath God. And you have probably guessed it, especially if you've looked at the title of this morning's message, you've definitely guessed it. We're talking about the anger and the wrath of of God. And yes, as we've already seen on, on the screen, our God is an amazing God of grace and love and kindness and mercy and goodness. And God hates sin. God hates sin. He is just. He is righteous. And He will not ignore wrongdoing. He will not ignore injustice. He will not ignore sin. Psalm 711 says, God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. Now, in a very real sense, this morning's message is a continuation of, it is a building upon the truth that we talked about last week, that God is just and He is righteous. And because God is just, because He is righteous, He will judge 
He will judge, listen, according to his perfect, complete knowledge. And he will judge according to his perfect and complete righteous character. Abraham, uh, in Genesis 18, asked the question of God to God. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Now, that is a great question. But it is a rhetorical question. And Abraham knew the answer. Yes, of course, God who is righteous, God who is just, he will judge. He will do what is right according to his knowledge. And I think that we may believe this. We may understand this in a big picture, maybe even in a theoretical kind of way, but many of us struggle to understand God's anger and God's wrath in a clear, biblical, simple way. It is very easy for our understanding of God, especially in our understanding of His wrath and and of His anger. We can become clouded in our thinking by our own feelings on the matter by our own experiences that we have had in life. It is easy for our thinking to become distorted because of the culture that we swim in, because of the philosophies that we encounter on a on a on a daily basis. Uh, And so we need to think rightly. We need to think biblically. We need to go once again and continually to God's word that we may see what God himself has to say about his character, about his anger, and about his wrath against sin. If you're in the book of Nahum, chapter 1, look at verses 1 to 8 with me. We'll read the verses, then we'll pray and we'll ask for God's help once again. But before we read these verses, let me remind you just once again a little bit of the context here. Here, God is speaking through the prophet Nahum and he is specifically addressing and speaking to now God's coming judgment against the city of of Nineveh. If that sounds familiar to you, it should, because there once was another prophet, the prophet Jonah, who as well was sent to the city of Nineveh. And we'll talk more about that a little bit later on in the message. But the point is, what we read here in Nahum chapter 1 does not just teach us about God's judgment against the city of Nineveh many thousands of years ago. No, what we read here in Nahum 1 teaches us about God himself. Let's look at the first eight verses. Nahum chapter 1. It says, An oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. Verse 2. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of His feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before Him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before Him. The world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before His indignation? Who can endure the heat of His anger? His wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken into pieces by him 
The Lord is good. A stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in Him. But with an overflowing flood, He will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue His enemies into darkness. Let's pray. Gracious Father, as we just read, you are good. You are a stronghold. You are safety. You are protection in the day of trouble. And we're so thankful that you know those who trust in you. You know those who belong to you, who run to you to find mercy and grace. Yes, you are slow to anger and yet you do not ignore sin. You do not clear the guilty, but you judge justly according to your perfect knowledge, according to your righteousness. Father, as we think about these things this morning, as we now study your word, let our thoughts be shaped and molded according to truth. Let us grow now in our reverence of you, in our fear for you, in our love for you. Make us better worshipers of you who bring glory to you as we walk with you, praising your name for all that you have done for us in Christ. And it is in his good name that we pray. Amen. Amen. This morning, as we consider the topic before us, we want to first examine five wrong ideas, five, maybe we could call them misconceptions about the wrath and the anger of God. And we want to look at God's truth in response to those wrong ideas, those wrong thoughts. And then towards the end, we're going to look at very briefly just five clear truths that we see from Scripture about the anger and wrath of God. If you're taking notes on on your outline, here's the first wrong idea, the first wrong misconception that we want to deal with, and it's this. Number one, if God is angry or wrathful, surely He cannot be so because God is love. God is not angry or wrathful. He can't be so because God is love. And we we hear this a lot in the day and age in which we love live. And it is true that the Bible says in 1 John 4, 8, that God is love. God is love. But as we learned several weeks ago when our good brother Matt was preaching, he reminded us and thinking about the love of God, that it is wrong to think of love as the sum total of all that God is. It is a mistake to dismiss and to throw away all other attributes and characteristics of God because we want to favor, we want to elevate one attribute over another or to the exclusion of other truths and attributes about God. See, we think wrongly about God when we want to pit one attribute against another and somehow imagine that there is great debate and there is great contention in the heart and mind of God. We think wrongly of God when we picture him maybe like a pie chart. Surely you've seen these pie charts and we imagine that that love to be an overall arching pie chart that fills up most of the pie. In fact, this week I just created this pie chart. You will not find this in any uh, theology 
book, nor should you find this in, in, in any kind of theology book, but some people imagine God to be like this, this pie chart. And surely we like love as an attribute of God. So let's make him a lot of love. Let's make him 50% love. Now that blue is, is holiness. And surely the Bible speaks a lot of God's holiness. So we must grant that he's, he, he's holy. So let's say he's 15% holy. And then I'm, uh, omnipotent. We want a God who can work for us, who is powerful for us, who can do great things for us. So let's make him 10% holy. Surely we want a God who is sovereign, who has the ability to act according to his wisdom and to his might. So let's make him 10% sovereign. Let's make him 9% wise. We want a wise God. And, and 5%, surely we want a righteous God. We want a good uh, God. And yet when it comes to wrath, Maybe, maybe 1% is sufficient, right? Maybe, and let's just leave it there. And, and this is how some people imagine God to be, but this is wrong. This is totally wrong. Forget you ever saw that. Throw it out. Because brothers and sisters, God is perfectly loving. He is entirely holy. He is all sovereign, all wise, all powerful. He is the very definition of righteousness and justice. As we, as we read earlier in Psalm 711, God feels indignation against sin every day. His wrath is perfect. His anger burns continually against sin. And as we read in Nahum, the prophet is not embarrassed to speak of God's wrath. And neither should, should we be embarrassed to speak of these things. The prophet has no trouble speaking of God as so good and yet angry against sin and willing to judge. He speaks of God's loving protection and his wrath against those who reject him, against those who rebel against him. Look again at verses 7 and 8 in Nahum 1. He writes, The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him, but with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. Now, in in addition to all of this, it is foolish, it is folly to ever try and eliminate one attribute of God because we think that somehow another attribute comes in to squash it out and to, and to make it null and void and to diminish it. No, in fact, think of it this way. Because God is love, this requires and demands that he hates certain things. Because God is love, there are some things that he hates and he must hate. And we understand this even, even, even as we think about one another and as we think about the things that we love. For instance, if you love children, if you love and care for kids, those precious little ones that God has placed around you, then you must, by very definition, hate child abuse. Right? How could you say, no, I love kids. I really care about kids, but I'm totally cool with child abuse. That cannot be. Your love and care for children demands that you hate that which would be harmful to them, that which would injure them. And so it is with God, because God is passionate for His glory, and God is passionate for the good of His people, He hates sin. 
And he cannot tolerate that which is in violation to who he is and that which would harm and injure his people. So yes, God hates sin and praise God that he hates it. Praise God that he hates it, that out of an overflow of his love for his glory and for the good of his people, he does indeed hate sin. Another wrong idea about God's wrath is this. Number two, if you're taking notes on your outline, is this. God is random. He is reckless. He is cruel. He is impulsive in the use of his anger and wrath. We we hear this much today. People say your God is a monster. He seems reckless and ruthless. Some even imagine God to be immature and childish in the way that he exercises his, his anger and wrath. And people suppose that God is always just one moment away from flying off the handle and just randomly striking someone with a thunderbolt or swallowing them up in an earthquake. And that you never know when it's going to happen. He's just totally unpredictable. He's childish. He's reckless. He can't be trusted. He is a monster. That is not what we read in Scripture. That is not what we see here, certainly in Nahum chapter 1. Look again at verse 3. The truth of God, the truth about God is this, verse 3. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. Yes, God does demonstrate his wrath and he will demonstrate his wrath, but he is patient. God is patient. He is long suffering and he gives opportunity and time for sinful men and women like us to repent and to come to our senses and to turn to him that we might find life and safety in Christ. Over in 2 Peter 3, 9, Peter writes, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promises, some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. One of the most obvious and powerful demonstrations of God's wrath was, of course, in fact, even as I say that, you know where I'm going with this. As we look at at biblical history, what is perhaps the greatest demonstration of God's wrath? It's the flood. It's the worldwide flood when God sent that flood and yet preserved the life of Noah and his family and God made his judgment known against sin. And yet, did you know that it took Noah many years to build the ark? Decades upon decades upon decades. And the scripture tells us in 2 Peter 2, 5 that during that time of the building of the ark that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. He was a herald of righteousness, proclaiming the righteousness of God that there may be time to repent. God was giving opportunity for sinful men and women to turn to him and find life. Remember that before God sent the plagues upon the nation of Egypt, before God through Moses demonstrated his power and his might and his judgment in the plagues against Egypt, God warned Pharaoh. God warned Pharaoh for years. Pharaoh had been acted wickedly, oppressing the people of God, killing the people of God. And God sends Moses to Pharaoh with the message, let my people go. 
And Pharaoh refuses and he hardens his heart. And so the judgment of God comes upon Egypt. And we could go on and on and on with examples of God's patience and his long suffering nature. But let me just mention one more. Earlier, we were talking about the book of Nahum and we talked about chapter one and the description of God's judgment against the city of Nineveh. And we mentioned a much more famous and well-known prophet than the book of Nahum. We mentioned Jonah. And about a hundred years before the writing of Nahum, the prophet Jonah was sent to the city of Nineveh with a message of repentance, with a message that God is going to bring judgment. He's going to destroy the city of Nineveh. And the people listened. The people of Nineveh repented and they turned to the Lord and God relented and and judgment did not fall and there was great safety and peace for the city of Nineveh. But here we are now, about a hundred years later, and once again, Nineveh has been given over to idolatry and they have run after their sin, pursuing their ungodliness and God once again sends a prophet the prophet Nahum to preach and to declare the judgment that is coming if the people will not repent. The point is, throughout history, God has been and continues to be so patient and so long-suffering. He's not reckless, not childish, not thoughtless, not impulsive. He is just in His judgment. In Exodus chapter 34, this is a marvelous chapter when Moses asks that he would see and behold the glory of God. And and God puts Moses in the cleft of the rock and God's glory passes by him. And then the text says that God comes to Moses and declares and speaks his name to Moses, declaring his glory and his greatness and his character and his nature. And this is what God proclaims to Moses in Exodus 34 verse 6. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. That is our God. He is good. He is slow to anger. He is forgiving. But He is unwilling to ignore justice. He will do what is right according to His righteousness. Number three, another wrong idea that we encounter and run into when thinking about God's anger and wrath is this. Well, if God were angry and wrathful, if He he was these things, well, He got that all out of His system in the Old Testament. And we, we, we hear this a lot. Again, yes, yes, the God of the Old Testament, He seems very angry. He seems very wrathful. Sure, the flood and, and the plagues against Egypt. But praise God for the New Testament. I mean, praise God for, for the God of the New Testament who really seems to mellow out. Who really seems to stop caring so much about matters of sin and righteousness, judgment and and justice. Our good friend J.I. Packer in his book Knowing God helpfully explains that this kind of thinking where we imagine that the God of the Old Testament is filled with wrath but the God of the New Testament has really mellowed out is exactly 
it is, it is wrong. It is wrong and it is backwards. J.I. Packer writes in his book, Knowing God, he says, people who do not actually read the Bible confidently assure us that when we move from the Old Testament to the New, the theme of divine judgment fades into the background. But if we examine the New Testament, even in the most cursory way, we find at once that the Old Testament emphasis on God's action as judge, far from being reduced, is actually intensified. He's right. He's, he's right. The New Testament continually recognizes, continually anticipates a coming day of judgment, a coming day of wrath. The New Testament proclaims that Jesus is both the Savior you need and the judge that you will stand before if you reject him. This is the message of the New Testament. It is filled with promises and references to this coming judgment. Let me give you just a few examples. James chapter 5 verse 9 says, Behold, which means stand amazed, the judge is standing at the door. Here God is pictured as, as a judge at the door of the courtroom and at any moment the judge could open the door and walk into the courtroom and court would be in session. Next, we, we also see in 1 Peter 4, 5, where Peter's writing, he says they, referring to those who reject God, they will give an account of, of themselves to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Jesus is ready. He is willing. He is competent. He is qualified to judge the living and the dead. Peter explains his life in ministry in Acts chapter 10, verse 42, saying this, He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that He, referring to Jesus, is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. Paul explains his own life and ministry in Acts chapter 17, verse 30, where he says to the, to the people in Athens, He commands all people everywhere to repent because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man, referring to Christ, whom He has appointed. And of this He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. Virtually every book in the New Testament in some way anticipates and sees coming and explains the certainty of the return of Jesus Christ and his perfect righteous judgment. It is simply not true to try and paint the New Testament as lacking emphasis on the judgment and wrath of God. Number four, another wrong thing to think about God's wrath and anger against sin is this. Number four, even if God does judge and exercise his wrath, surely there won't be eternal consequences. People like to say things like, well, nothing lasts forever. God can't be angry about sin forever. Eventually, God's wrath, God's judgment, it will end. It will fade away. I need to tell you, Jesus would not agree with those statements. 
Jesus would not agree with that opinion. At the end of Matthew chapter 25, Jesus described, Jesus himself describes a coming day when he will render judgment. You can read all about it in verses 31 to 45, but simply listen to how Jesus summarizes the end result of this judgment. In Matthew chapter 25 verse 46, Jesus says, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. According to Christ, those are the only two options. Those are the only two results. Eternal punishment and eternal life and Just in case you were wondering, Jesus uses the exact same Greek word, ionion, to describe both eternal punishment and eternal life. It's the same Greek word, just as eternal life lasts forever, so does eternal punishment. Look again in Nahum chapter 1 verse 8, where the prophet writes, but with an overflowing flood. He will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. Now, I, I get it. OK, you've heard this. I've, I've heard this. People say things like, man, come on. That, that sounds so extreme. How can there be eternal punishment for sinning against God? How can there be eternal punishment For anything that we do here on earth, wouldn't God's wrath, wouldn't God's judgment again, wouldn't it eventually mellow out, eventually fade away? Remember that in our relationships, in our responsibilities to and with one another, there are and there can be, listen, different consequences for the very same action. There are going to be different consequences for the very same action depending on who you offend. Depending on who you wrong. Who you sin against, if we can speak in that terminology. For instance, uh, uh, if I tell a lie and get caught, uh, the consequences will be very different depending on who I lie to. Uh, On the screens, this is a picture of, of my son Landon, and he is showing you on his arm an inchworm or... I don't know, some kind of worm that he found in, in, in the backyard. And he is six years old and he is a, a great, cute little boy. Uh, but again, he's six. If I were to lie to him, and again, that's a terrible thought, okay? And I'm, I, but if I were to lie to him, what would the consequences really be? What, what could he really do to me? He, he, he'd get mad. He could maybe kick me in the shins. He could, you know, he could, he could, he could have an attitude. But I mean, what is, what is he really going to do to me? Not, not much. Not a whole lot. But now imagine that instead of lying to this little boy, I lie to this group of individuals. And, uh, and so imagine I lie to the police. I lie to the FBI. I lie to them and I impede a serious criminal investigation. Imagine I testify before Congress and I, I lie to Congress. Now, now I'm going to go to prison. I'm going to face very different consequences for the exact same sin of lying. Listen, friend, brothers and sisters, when we sin against God... We are not sinning against the police, the FBI, 
Congress, the Supreme Court, we have sinned against the eternal God. The eternal one whose scripture says dwells in unapproachable light. One who is so holy, who is so blazing in righteousness and purity, he cannot ever look approvingly upon even the slightest sin. Look again at Nahum chapter 1 verse 2. See the character and nature of God. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and he keeps wrath for his enemies. When we sin against God, we have sinned against one, listen, who never falters, who never changes, even in the slightest of ways. And so, yes, there can be and there are eternal consequences for sin against this God. Because he is holy, he can never stop being holy, he will never grow friendly towards sin or favorable towards sin. God will never think that wickedness is no big deal. It's, it's delusion to think that. Lastly, one last wrong idea about God that we want to dispel is this. Number five, it's not helpful to think about or study the anger and wrath of God. It's, it, sure, it, it might be true, but it's just not helpful. You know, some might admit that, yes, God is holy, he hates sin, but is this really helpful? Is, is, is this really necessary that we talk about this? Some would prefer to talk only about those attributes of God, those characteristics of God that, that you know, we tend to find warm and comforting and, and friendly. A song that has become very popular in, in recent years, and, and for good reason, is the worship song In Christ Alone, written by Keith and Kristen Getty and Stuart Townend. We have sung that song a lot here at Harbor Shores, and, and that is a wonderful song. But interestingly enough, that song has become a source of controversy in recent years because of what it says in verse 2. Verse 2 of In Christ Alone reads like this. In Christ alone, who took on flesh, fullness of God in helpless babe, this gift of love and righteousness, scorned by the ones he came to save. Till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ, I live. Two different times now, Two different groups have petitioned to have the lyrics to this verse changed, to remove any reference to the wrath of God. Most recently, in 2010, a hymn committee with the Presbyterian Church USA requested to include this song in their new hymnal, but only if they could change the lyrics to speak only of God's love. The Gettys and Stuart Townend declined this request to change the lyrics, and so the hymn committee decided to completely remove the song from their worship planning and from their, their use. The committee chair for the Presbyterian Church Hymn Committee said that the song's mention of God's wrath would, quote, have a negative effect on the hymnal's ability to form the faith of coming generations. 
So even a mention of God's wrath is negative and will harmfully affect the faith of coming generations. In an interview with Colin Hansen, writing for the Gospel Coalition, Keith Getty explained why they thought it important to change the lyrics, but to include the song as is, referencing God's wrath. Keith explained it like this. We believe altering the lyrics would remove an essential part of the gospel story as explained throughout Scripture. The main thread of what we see revealed throughout the Old and New Testament is the need for man to be made right with God. The provided path toward reconciliation came through Christ's predetermined and perfect sacrifice on the cross, satisfying God's wrath. Once and for all, the two hymnal committees wanted to change the lyrics to focus on how Christ's death on the cross magnifies God's love for the world. And indeed, God's love was magnified on Calvary's hill. Yet the way this occurred was through Christ doing for us what we could not do for ourselves, shedding his own perfect blood to atone for our sins. He's right. He's right. We lack If we have no understanding of God's wrath and judgment against sin, then Jesus' death does not make a lot of sense. It seems rather unnecessary. The Apostle John wrote so often about how Christ in His death on the cross was and is the satisfaction for our sins. In 1 John 2.1, he writes, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the Righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now that word propitiation, it means satisfaction. It means appeasement. The ESV study Bible explains this verse well, saying propitiation. That's that Greek word hilasmas. It means here a sacrifice that bears God's wrath and turns it to favor. And brothers and sisters, that's what Christ has done for us. He has borne the wrath of God on our behalf that we may know and experience and receive His favor and His blessing and His goodness in our lives. And so it is very beneficial to know and to understand the truth concerning God's wrath because it explains the cross. It heightens our awareness of our need for Christ. Now, In the couple minutes that we have left, and I realize it's just a couple minutes, but I want to give you five realities, five truths that the Bible teaches and explains so clearly regarding God and His wrath against sin. We've already alluded to them in one way or another, but we want to state them clearly and directly. The first one is this, as it relates to God's wrath, it is eternal. It is eternal. God's anger and wrath is part of His eternal character and nature. And since God never changes, He never becomes friendly towards or accepting of sin. That would be a rejection of His own character and nature. God cannot do that. He cannot deny and reject who He is. Second Thessalonians 1.9 says that for those who don't know God, for those who reject Jesus Christ, they will quote, 
suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. Those who reject God, this is their end, eternal destruction away from the good, gracious, kind presence of God. And that is a horrifying thought to be forever cut off from the goodness of God and from His grace. But that is the reality for those who reject Christ and remain in their sin. This is why the writer of Hebrews would say in Hebrews 10.31, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It is a fearful thing. So God's wrath is eternal. Secondly, it is earned. It is earned. God's wrath does not fall on the innocent. It does not fall on the undeserving. It falls on those who have earned it and even chosen it through their sin and rebellion. A verse that you probably memorize and have known for years, Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Remember, wages are something that you rightly receive. Wages are are something that you receive because you have earned it. You have done something. You received these wages. We have sinned and thus we have earned death. We deserve to be separated from God. No one who ever experiences the wrath of God can ever say, I don't deserve this. I'm innocent. I didn't, I didn't do what God says I have done. I'm innocent. I'm a, I'm a victim here. Not so. Not so. Listen to how some of the most well-known and well-loved verses in all the Bible speak to this truth. Speak to this reality. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness." rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. God is so clear. Jesus is so clear. We earn God's wrath. We deserve God's wrath because we love darkness. On our own, apart from God, left to ourselves, we love darkness and we refuse to come to Christ and be saved. God's wrath is just. It is earned and it is deserved through and by sin. Next, number three on your outline, we, we must say this about God's wrath. That This is entirely unpleasant, but it is true. It is excruciating. God's wrath is excruciating as it is explained and shown to us in Scripture. Words cannot adequately explain or articulate the pain and the agony of being eternally under God's wrath. In Luke chapter 16, Jesus told a story about two men, a, a poor man named Lazarus and, and a rich man. And Jesus' words are instructive 
for us and teach us. And Jesus' words are so clear and plain. There isn't a slide for this. Simply listen to the story, to the truth that Jesus explained. In Luke 16, verse 19, Jesus said, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment... He lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child... Remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, Neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. And that is so ironic, of course, because Christ did rise from the dead. He proved, he showed that he had conquered sin and death, and yet people still refused to believe. They still refused to believe and to trust in Christ. Notice the words that Christ uses to describe being separated from God. He speaks of anguish. He speaks of torment. He speaks of being in anguish in the flame. Revelation 20. Hell is described as the lake of fire. In Revelation 20.15, the Apostle John writes, If anyone's name was not found... Written in the book of life. He was thrown into the lake of fire. This is the excruciating end for those who reject Christ. For those who choose to love their sin and to remain under the wrath of God. But friend, I beg you, I plead with you. We've been trying to say this all morning. And if you hear nothing else, hear this. Number four is this. When it comes to the wrath of God, it is escapable. It is escapable. Jesus came and he lived and he died and he rose again so that we would not need to die eternally. So that we would not need to be under the wrath of God When Jesus died on the cross, he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
That was the cry of a cursed man who was separated from his father, who was experiencing the rejection that we would experience if Jesus did not take our place. There was another man who died next to Jesus, a thief on the cross next to him who recognized his guilt and his need for life and he cried out to mercy and to this man Jesus said truly I say to you today you will be with me in paradise you need not die in your sins this man on the cross did not die in his sins because he trusted in Christ to save him and to rescue him Friend, if you're here this morning, you can do this. You can trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and you can find life and forgiveness in Him. The hope of the gospel is summarized in Romans 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Today is a day of grace. Today is the day of mercy. Today is the day to come to Jesus and live, which brings us to our last point, and it's this. When we think about the wrath of God, it is ever approaching for those who reject Christ. It is, it is ever approaching. In Colossians chapter 3, Paul lists a bunch of sins, and then he says, quote, On account of these, the wrath, of God is coming. It is coming. We like to fool ourselves into always thinking we have more time. We like to fool ourselves and we say things like, you know, I'll, I'll start working out tomorrow. I'll start saving for retirement tomorrow. I'll start eating healthy tomorrow. I'll follow God tomorrow. I'll give my life to Christ Tomorrow, friend, you don't have tomorrow and you never will. All you have is today. To turn to Christ today. Why not trust Him now? Why not turn to Him now? Why wait to come to one who is so good and so faithful and so gracious? Why wait to be rescued tomorrow. Be rescued today. Romans 10.9 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Romans 10.13 says, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Jesus asked the question in Mark 9, What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? Friend, you know what you need to do. Trust Christ. Come to Him today. And if you already know the Lord Jesus Christ, if you've been rescued and redeemed and and saved by Him, don't stay quiet about this good news, but tell those who need to hear, who need to know what Christ has done for them. If you'd like to talk with someone, pray with someone today, we'd love to meet you and talk with you after the service. We'll be available down front and at the doors, but we would love to encourage you in your walk with Christ. He is that good. He is that good. He is trustworthy. Come to Him today. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank You for the clear and for the consistent testimony and teaching of your word 
We praise you for the life, for the joy, for the safety, for the peace that there is in Christ. Thank you for sending your Son that we could be redeemed, rescued, that we could be made your children. Father, help us now to continually grow as we walk with you, as we speak of you and of your saving power. Be glorified in us and through us, and we pray this in Jesus' good name. Amen.